so again, thank you for that kind introduction and for inviting me here tonight. Um, so this will largely uh, uh, follow a lot of, uh, largely follow my book. However, I also do have some updates at the end that uh, consider what has happened since uh, the DPJ came to power because the book itself really doesn't cover that uh, except for a few footnotes in the conclusions. So the, the basic question I start with is, is Japan emerging as a normal military power? Now that begs the question, what is a normal military power? And there are various answers to that. Uh, but what I'm arguing here is that the most important dimension that really matters is Japan is a country that is willing uh, to use military force overseas, uh, project uh, offensive power uh, well beyond its borders, uh, that sees military force overseas as having uh, utility for promoting national goals. And we can see that there are a lot of observers who think that is exactly the direction Japan is moving in. We have the 2000 Armitage Report, Japan to emerge, uh, called or predicted, argued Japan would emerge as the Britain of Asia, willing to fight alongside the US uh, in conflicts far from Japan. As we can see, this is a, uh, an, an interesting quote in the book from um, a, uh, a respected colleague, Ellis Krauss, who makes the same kind of argument that thanks to the Iraq, uh, the deployment of the SDF to Iraq, now it is possible for Japan to consider relaxing, if not lifting, its ban on uh, collective self-defense, uh, meaning that Japan, uh, Japan can now possibly fight alongside uh, the U.S. in conflicts in regions uh, and places far removed from Japan. Um, and Eric uh, Higginbotham, a political science, scientist and analyst at the Rand Corporation, as you can see, makes essentially the same argument. So this is what the issue and the debate that I'm addressing. Is this true? Uh, is Japan really moving in this direction or not? <clears throat> and my main hypotheses are that public opinion has prevented and prevents Japan from assuming that sort of an, uh, from assuming an overseas military role, particularly I mean an overseas combat role, not necessarily a non-combat role. Uh, and Japanese public opinion is, con is composed of atti basic attitudes about security that uh, form the basis of uh, the opinions uh, that the public has on various issues. And I identify this as defensive or attitude attitudinal defensive realism, which is different from kind of academic defensive realism in a number of ways I outline in the book. Um, it focuses on the utility of offensive military power versus defensive military power, um, for example. I won't spend too much time on that, but I'm happy to address the kind of theoretical differences if you want. Um, but the, the basic argument is that Japanese public opinion views military force as you can see, it has utility for defending national territory, but not for much else. In other words, it doesn't have utility for uh, suppressing terrorism, suppressing WMD proliferation, promoting democracy, promoting human rights, for example. Um, now, as a result of um, uh, former Prime Minister Koizumi's overreaching of the domestic consensus regarding the uh, acceptable limits of uh, SDF overseas deployments, uh, we saw a backlash in public opinion after uh, the Iraq uh, deployment, which could also be called, as I mentioned in a moment, an Iraq syndrome. Um, and again, public opinion overwhelmingly and persistently opposes combat overseas. So and in a related sense, uh, the Iraq deployment created 
stoked kind of fears of entrapment in an American war to levels not really seen since the Vietnam War when they were, these fears were quite high. Priorities. Japanese public, the Japanese public has been angered by leaders who appear, as you can see, to prioritize overseas SDF deployments over domestic uh, economic threats, uh, perceived threats, uh, economic insecurity, uh, reform of the pension uh, system, kind of aging society types of issues. Um, and uh, they, they want their leaders to focus on the things that they care about. And when they focus on things such as overseas deployments of the SDF, they have been punished. Now the competing hypothesis, the kind of, I think, the more mainstream kind of view that I'm arguing a bit against, argues that no, the Japanese public always provides ex post facto support for all kind of incremental fait accompli expansions of uh, the SDF's military role overseas. And it doesn't, or, or in, in any form for that matter, and it doesn't really matter the nature of the deployment, the nature of the expansion of the SDF role. Whatever the state decides to do, the public will follow along, particularly if it's kind of incremental and gradual. And I'm arguing that there are some cases when that model, though it works in many cases, does not work. Now, competing theories of public opinion on which I kind of base my argument, um, these are, as you can see, uh, derived from the U.S. study of public opinion, and I'm applying them to Japan. There's the elitist approach, which argues that public opinion is, uh, as you can see, it's uninformed, it's unstable, it's uh, composed of non-attitudes. But fortunately for uh, the adherence to this view, it's also moldable and ultimately can be ignored. So the public does not influence policy and should not influence policy in this view. Um, so politicians should be the guardians of the public. Now, by contrast, you have this pluralist approach. And, and by the way, the elitist approach dates back to the 1920s, Walter Lippmann's work on the phantom public and, and others. Now, in the 1960s, during the Vietnam War, you began to see the emergence of a pluralist uh, competing approach that um, argued that actually collective public opinion is stable. It can be coherent. It is actually not easily moldable or ignorable, and it is wiser than the sum of its parts. Now, the key point here is collective public opinion. Uh, the elitists find that individuals often don't have very strong attitudes, or they change their views a lot, or uh, they make a lot of mistakes. But uh, what the pluralists argue is a lot of that is just kind of random errors, and that that cancels out when you, collect, when you aggregate public opinion into its whole. So that even though an individual's views may um, kind of appear to oscillate over time, uh, oscillate from their kind of true long-term preference, the uh, collective public opinion does not. And therefore, collective public opinion is very stable um, and also can be uh, coherent. Um, and from this point of view, politicians should be the representatives of the public uh, rather than its guardians. Now, uh, this is kind of my sidebar down here. If you think about this, these are really two kind of extreme views, right? Either uh, the pub uh, uh, leaders should always ignore the public, or they should always listen to the public, right? And uh, probably uh, neither one of those is really uh, truly uh, viable, um, certainly not all the time. So, you know, in answer to the question, which is it, I would say it's a bit of both, right? Leaders should educate the public in the short run. They should lead in the short run. Uh, particularly when you have a crisis. Um, but over time, 
in the medium to long term, which itself is a very debatable question, what is that? But you know, at least a year or two, the public, I would argue, should or the, the leaders should listen to the public and be responsive. Um, they may take their best shot at education, and then uh, once the public has quote been educated, they stand back and listen to the public. Is that's kind of my normative sidebar here, but I think that's uh, the reasonable way to think about uh, which, you know, uh, uh, which is, makes the most sense in uh, practical terms. Now, uh, background, which uh, was uh, uh, mentioned in uh, the introduction, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this. I do talk about this in the book. I have a whole a chapter on the Cold War. But has Japanese public opinion ever really been pacifist? And my argument, in some sense I'm building on the work of others, particularly Thomas Berger and his work on uh, anti, uh, Japanese anti-militarism, Japanese public opinion during the Cold War was never really pacifist. Very few Japanese thought Japan should have no military at all. Uh, even many who said they were opposed to the Jiatai, the SDF, when pressed further uh, by pollsters would, would say that, yes, they thought Japan should have a military, but maybe not the SDF. In other words, the SDF was initially distrusted by many Japanese as perhaps being a creature of uh, the right wing, a creature of pre-war elites. Um, uh, former Prime Minister Nobusuke Kishi comes to mind in, in, in that sense. Uh, and therefore, they had some concerns about the uh, SDF itself. But that's different from saying they necessarily thought Japan uh, should be unarmed. Um, and I would argue that passive, true pacifism has really been only one element of public opinion, as is the case in most Western democracies. Believe it or not, even in the US, there are pacifists. Um, and, uh, but they're not a large uh, percentage of the population, but, but they're not necessarily small either. Um, maybe 10% or more, and that's certainly what you have in, in Japan. Now, anti-militarist distrust uh, of the state's ability uh, you know, Berger talks about this as a culture. I think about this more in terms of a, a cog, uh, cognition uh, and trust or distrust. The public simply distrusted the state's ability to wield the sword. They didn't believe the Japanese state could uh, wisely wield the military. Um, and they also mistrusted civilian control. They did not believe civilian control uh, would work in Japan and were, were <coughs> therefore very fearful of the military spinning out of control. So what was often labeled pacifism uh, in other respects can also be uh, considered you know, attitudes that actually in some ways are consistent with realism. For example, a large segment of the population feared entrapment in American wars, which I already referred to. And entrapment, fear of entrapment is not a, a pacifist uh, argument. Indeed, it's kind of a realist uh, theory. Um, also, there was a recognition that hawkish policies risked provoking others. Now, this last point, to be sure, um, you could argue, and I would argue, that the Japanese public focused too much on this and too little on deterrence. So they, they worried too little about the need to deter other countries and too much about provoking other countries. So and from a kind of a realist perspective, you could argue that there was kind of an imbalance there. Nonetheless. Um, that's more of a digression from realism than it is, you know, a kind of paradigmatic challenge in the form of, of pacifism. 
public attitudes and uh, measurable opinion uh, and outcomes. This is my kind of flow chart here. Uh, some people find this very hard to uh, uh, figure out, perhaps because it is kind of complicated, and I apologize for that. It's getting more complicated. We're almost done there. That's it. Uh, and um, I, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but uh, in terms of social sciences, the kind of key independent variables are elites, public attitudes towards security. This is what I think is the key variable. <coughs> and these, in turn, uh, are composed of two major attitudes, trust or distrust of the states control the military, and utility of military force. Does it have any force? Does it have any utility for defense of the nation? And, and uh, when used offensively overseas, etc. So from attitudes come public opinions about various issues of the day. But many public opinions are latent, and we don't know about them until they are measured by an opinion poll, and then survey wording. For example, there's almost no polling data in Japan I know of that asks the question, when is uh, you know war in an abstract sense? When is war? Uh, legitimate or justified or in the national interest. There are some academic surveys, but uh, one survey I know about, but very little uh, that asks that kind of question. And survey wording, as I'll say in a moment, uh, has a big impact on measurable opinion. Uh, the thing to remember about public opinion and surveys is people answer the question you ask them. If you ask them one question, they're answer one way. If you ask them another question, they're answer another way. Um, and all, often when we analyze polls, we project onto the, poll, onto the poll result what we want to. And we have to be careful about that. Uh, I recommend when you present a poll result in, in an academic paper, always, if possible, try to list the question wording so people can see what they're actually answering. And then, so this is one dependent variable. And then the final one is policy outcomes. Now, elites, of course, have a big impact on policy outcomes. I'm not, I, I don't deny that. But I'm arguing that public attitudes towards security through this, uh, this chain, uh, this causal chain, influence measurable opinion, which has a big impact on policy outcomes, and also has a big impact on elites in democratic Japan. They want to be reelected, right? Particularly the, politi I mean, the politicians want to be reelected. And therefore, they have to pay attention. Now, they try to influence public attitudes via real world developments. But they can't always do that, right? You know, one of, how, how, how does the Japanese demonstrate that offensive military power or using the SDF in combat overseas has utility? It's pretty hard. Now, this is um, just a diagram that kind of uh, gives my conception of the debates over security, um, uh, particularly uh, the use of the SDF in the Cold War <laughs> and particularly the uh, post-Cold War era. So this is, quote, unquote, pacifism. Uh, this would be kind of unlimited use of military power. Uh, hawkish elites try to push the um, uh, push, and, and this is what I would call an indifference slope of the public. So anything within the slope, the public supports. Anything outside of it, they don't. And this is um, uh, uh, the utility of offensive military power, and this is the utility of defensive military power. And during the Cold War, this was the slope, and then after the Cold War ended, uh, we see some movement outwards towards something like this. So this is kind of post-1991. And here we have various policy proposals of elites that either fall in or on the indifference slope or outside of it. Now, as I say, hawkish elites may want to go out here as much as possible. Um, 
But the argument is if they really go much beyond or go beyond the indifferent slope of the public, they will get punished for it. Um, uh, I'd argue that this happened uh, uh, with the Iraq's uh, Reconstruction Special Measures Law in the 2004 upper house election. Uh, and it happened here with these failed proposals uh, for establishing a UN peacekeeping bill. And what happened was the bill was watered down until it met the uh, expectations of the public. That's, that's my basic argument. But how, how, these, how these debates uh, uh, and political fights function. Now jumping to some uh, recent real world cases, um, how about Iraq? Uh, what was the public's view about the dispatch to Iraq? And uh, my basic argument, and this gives you a taste of the data, there's lots more data in the book, is that the public was ambivalent about the dispatch. Um, in the sense that the public liked what the ground self-defense forces were doing in southern Iraq in Samoa. The, uh, ground, the Japanese military uh, rebuilt it, built its, the SDF built its legitimacy and popularity by effectively being a domestic disaster relief organization, by providing uh, uh, disaster relief in a sense after, I think, the first time was a big typhoon in the Nagoya region, 1959. They dug Kanazawa out when it was buried in snow in 1963. There was an, uh, a major volcano in 1989. There have been a number of major incidents. They actually deploy all the time for big and small types of disasters. And of course, most recently, after the 311 quake. Um, and uh, support for sending the SDF overseas, I would argue, can be thought of as essentially support for internationalizing this domestic disaster relief organization. So when they build bridges and purify water and uh, refurbish schools, this is uh, highly regarded in Japan. So if, effectively, I'd argue the way I would parse this is that the Japanese public was saying, we like what the GSDF is doing in Iraq, but we don't want them to be there. So you had kind of an ambivalent uh, result here. But when you asked, do you want to extend the SDF deployment for another year, you consistently got a very large majority saying no. And I, that, that's how I would understand this. Now, on the other hand, you also had this claim uh, at the end of the dispatch that you had overwhelming support for the dispatch in the end, and that this somehow justified, or that this justified uh, uh, Koizumi's decision. You have a September 2006 <laughs> Prime Minister's <laughs> office poll that found 71% strongly or somewhat favorably evaluated the dispatch of the GSDF to Iraq versus only about 17% who did not. Now what this again shows, I would argue, is the public's tendency to support the SDF humanitarian and reconstruction operations, not necessarily that particular dispatch, and that these are actually two different things. The original question prompted respondents by avoiding Koizumi's original kind of alliance-related and normal nation justifications and focused entirely on the humanitarian reconstruction nature of the operations and the fact that they uh, escaped with no casualties. So, you know, if you think about it, how could you say no to this kind of question? You know, being against purifying water and rebuilding schools, I mean, it's sort of like being against motherhood if you think about it. You'd have to be a strategic poll answer to say no and to say, well, if I say yes, it's going to be in, in, uh, used to uh, uh, support or legitimate this deployment, so I have to say no. But if you answer it sincerely instead of strategically, it's very hard to say no. Um, 
Also, it's interesting to note that actually this represents a significant drop in support because pre-Iraq polls showed around 85% supported overseas SDF dispatches for humanitarian relief. So this is actually significantly less. So none, there was actually a significant drop anyway. I mean, this looks impressive, but you know, uh, in, in this context, it's not quite as impressive. Uh, then we can look at uh, the question of the fact that the air self-defense forces after the ground self-defense forces withdrew stayed in Iraq uh, for uh, another two years. And um, the Asahi Shimbun asked about that. Uh, and they asked whether the uh, respondents supported continuing the mission. June 2006, as we can see, a majority opposed continuing their deployment versus about a third who supported. March 2007, we see growing opposition to the continued deployment. It's growing quite large. Also significant opposition to even cooperating with the U.S. in Iraq. Now, this was done before the Prime Minister's poll I mentioned before. Now, interestingly, the Prime Minister's poll did not even ask this question, or if they did, they didn't publish the results. I don't know. Um, either way, it's the same result. It's, it, it's telling, I think. What they did ask instead is, instead of asking, do you support the AS, ASDF deployment, they asked, have you heard of it? And they found almost 50% had not heard of it. Uh, and I think one could argue that the, the calculation then from uh, the Conte, from the Abe's uh, uh, administration's perspective was they could fly the ASDF mission literally under the radar of public opinion. That if not enough people were paying attention to it, they wouldn't suffer any political consequences from doing that. On the other hand, they extended the um, this mission uh, in diet legislation just about two months before the uh, July 2007 upper house election where Japan, where the LDP lost its majority. So that may have uh, contributed to some extent, not that, uh, again, there's not a lot of polling data to support that, but uh, I think that's quite significant. But uh, the lessons of the LDP's defeat in 2007 uh, in the upper house election. Um, my argument would be even if the public was not voting against constitutional reform per se or overseas deployments, it was voting against Abe's priorities that were focusing on constitutional reform, uh, sending the SDF overseas to play an international security role, instead of focusing on issues like pension reform, other aging society issues, economic growing, economic inequality, etc. So this is what I would argue uh, was the lesson of, the, of that election. Um, July 2000, or January 2007, we can see almost 50% of respondents thought it was inappropriate to base the upper house election that year on constitutional reform versus only about a third who thought it was appropriate. Now, uh, one, one, it, one has to admit that um, public opinion data, you can ask a million different questions a million different ways, but, uh, and, and that rarely happens. Um, but there's always going to be some ambiguity about how one reads public op uh, opinion polls. I think, you know, these are, are very well-founded results, but you can, or in, uh, inferences, but you can read them other ways, of course, too. But the other part of the argument is how do politicians read the results of elections and read public opinion polls, because that helps to determine how they behave. And it's very clear that uh, politicians saw this as a rebuke of the whole agenda of um, sending the SDF overseas, uh, playing a more normal security role. Comey uh, uh, warned you know, Abe after the election to stop focusing on those issues. Prime Minister Asso, who himself supported the same agenda 
as Abe in terms of uh, reclaiming the right to collective self-defense, uh, cited this election as his reason for not pursuing reinterpretation of Article 9. Uh, we also saw a sharp reduction, as you can see, in diet support for constitutional reform in the House of Councilors from, you know, from over two-thirds to barely a majority uh, in the, um, just after the, uh, those two elections. Now, uh, at the same time, support for constitutional reform uh, withers, as we can see. This is the Yomi or Shimbun question. <laughs> Uh, we can see uh, support for revising Article 9 has been mu generally much lower than for constitutional <coughs> revision overall. Um, so basically, it peaked in 2004 and then started going down. Interestingly, the, uh, the biggest drop was precisely when Abe was promoting the very idea. So Abe's promotion of constitutional reform clearly backfired and helped to um, uh, diminish support for constitutional reform. And then by the following year, in 2008, uh, you have for the uh, first time a, uh, a plurality, for the first time since 1993, a plurality support, uh, opposing constitutional reform. Uh, that was during the Fukuda administration. Then you have some bounce back uh, in 2009, but then in 2010 you're basically back at a tie. Uh, uh, Yomiuri did not uh, conduct the poll in March of this year, I guess because of uh, the, uh, because of the earthquake. They did conduct it in September. I didn't put the results in, but the results for this year in September are pretty much the same as last year. It was like 42% in favor, 39% opposed, or something like that. So basically, we're kind of stuck. Uh, uh, you have, support is pretty much stuck in this range. Support and opposition are pretty much tied. There hasn't been much movement. Uh, but again, a lot of the change happened precisely when Abe was pushing the, the idea. So advocates will have to, I would argue, start from scratch to rebuild support, public support for uh, constitutional reform. They might be able to do that, but again, the last couple of years um, aren't too encouraging, I think, at least for now. Um, now, public opinion on extending the uh, Maritime Self-Defense Force's refueling mission in fall 2007. This is another case that I look at. Asahi Shimbun. Uh, you know, had this question asking, is it necessary to continue the mission? You start off with strong opposition, but then opposition declines. Uh, become, uh, you have a plurality supporting it, but then opposition reemerges at the end and, uh, and support falls again. Now, briefly, my uh, hypothesis here is that uh, the MSDF refueling mission bill failed to achieve public support, even though Prime Minister Fukuda tried to water it down narrow its contents, make it less objectionable to the public, and kind of break up the uh, opposing opinion majority. Uh, however, public sentiment by December turned very negative when uh, uh, Prime Minister Fukuda made a, a, a shitsugen, a, a mistaken uh, 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 misspoke, and claimed that he had never promised to clean up the pension system, uh, the, the pension missed, uh, missing pension records fiasco by the following April, even though in fact that's what the party had had promised to do, and that created the image, I would argue, that he was not focusing on uh, the, what the public really cared about, but instead was focusing on getting this bill through the Diet, and which included overriding the uh, Democratic Party of Japan, the opposition party's control of the upper house with a two-thirds revote in the lower house. Um, so, I mean, the comment itself also created a lot of mistrust in Fukuda. His uh, opinion, his uh, support rating plummeted and never really recovered from that. 
Um, so that's part of it too. But I think, uh, but more generally, I think there was a, a perception that, like Abe, he was focusing more on this issue instead of on pension reforms and what the public wanted him to focus on. So they punished him for that. Um, also, by the way, um, other poll questions do show that generally the public um, also favors uh, the two parties getting along together. Like the American public, the Japanese public does not like to see partisan rancor in the, in the diet. So they favor cooperation, but they don't necessarily favor a grand coalition. So when there was talk of, of cooperation and compromise, that's another reason why you saw support go up, I would argue. Now, public support for territorial defense, on the other hand, is strong and growing. So what we've talked about, obviously, up to now is sending the SDF overseas to use force. But a 2006 Prime Minister's Office poll found, for example, as you can see here, a, a strong majority supported missile defense um, versus uh, only about a quarter who opposed. And when uh, the Aso cabinet, when Prime Minister Aso in April 2009 deployed missile defenses to possibly intercept a North Korean mm -hmm. test missile in case it fell in Japan, uh, we saw even stronger support for this decision. Almost two-thirds supported it. Only about, as you can see, about 16% opposed it. So I, I would take, I think this counts as strong evidence uh, that the public is very comfortable with territorial defense. Public opinion and uh, the new DPJ administration, my, and this goes beyond my book uh, from now. I would argue that the, this, this clash we've seen between public opinion and the LDP's promotion of overseas SDF deployments, especially that what we saw during the Koizumi and, Ab, and Abe administrations, largely dissipated during the DPJ because the DPJ is no longer pursuing those policies. The DPJ is pursuing a, a security strategy that is much more of a kind of defensive realist grand strategy that is, emphasizes strengthening territorial defense, such as the DPJ submarine buildup we're seeing right now, uh, while avoiding overseas deployments uh, that have anything to do with the use of force, especially those related to U.S. conflicts. Um, and we see a plurality growing into a majority supported the Hatoyama cabinet's decision to withdraw the Indian Ocean refueling mission uh, in September, October 2009. So again, uh, no, no confrontation between public opinion and, and the administration, rather, uh, 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 well, harmony of interest sounds a little too strong, but, but general agreement on what to do. Is Japan's counter-piracy deployment inconsistent with the public's defense of realism? Um, uh, critics probably would argue yes. Um, for the record, I would argue no, uh, because it really is not really an overseas deployment. It's more like a high seas deployment. Uh, and I think that makes a difference uh, because it's, it's not on foreign territory. It's in international waters. It's also a defensive deployment. And even though it's not talked about this way, it's actually a, essentially a non-combat deployment. Uh, it's very difficult for a situation to arise where the MSDF actually uses uh, military force against pirates because their rules of engagement allow them to fire on pirates who ignore warnings and approach them. But if pirates turn around and flee, they're not allowed to do anything. So you have, unless you're a suicidal pirate, the, uh, they're not going to use force. Um, now, and this mission is politically neutral. I mean, it includes an extremely broad coalition of unlike-minded nations. It includes China. Russia, even Iran. Uh, the only country that's really missing is North Korea, but maybe, who knows, maybe they're on their way. 
Um, and it really doesn't endanger any entrapment in the U.S. Uh, with, in U.S. military operations. In fact, this one real characteristic of this uh, 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 deployment is that the U.S. role is very small. It's one of the few international military uh, operations where the U.S. role is quite small. In fact, often Japan's uh, presence is bigger because Japan deploys two destroyers for uh, escort service plus uh, two P-3 planes that provide surveillance and information to other navies. And so perhaps because of these characteristics, we have a strong plurality, um, and in some other polls, a majority who, who support uh, uh, the deployment. And again, it's also for defending Japanese shipping. <coughs> now, what measures do you think, um, now, th this is a question for about, um, uh, again, territorial defense, and this is from 2010, as we can see, right after the fishing boat incident in the Senkaku Islands. Uh, we can see further evidence of continued uh, growth and support for robust territorial defense. And asked, you know, when, when asked in this poll, what do you think the Khan administration should do to respond to the environment around the Senkaku Islands, we get these results. 30% want to strengthen uh, uh, security with uh, the Coast Guard patrol vessels, although they don't use the term Coast Guard. 20, about a qu almost a quarter wanted to deploy MSDF security, or uh, deploy MSDF uh, destroyers to the islands to enhance uh, uh, Japan's control of the islands. Uh, about almost 18% wanted to deploy the ground self-defense forces, station them on the islands itself. So if you, in terms of in involving the, um, the SDF, you have over 40% who want to deploy the SDF. Add the 30% who want to strengthen, uh, the, uh, strengthen the Coast Guard deployments, and over 70% favor a physical military or semi-military response uh, to events on the islands. By comparison, those who want to talk with China are at 1.2% are within the margin of error. Those who want to uh, increase assertions that uh, the Japanese island, the islands are Japanese territory, also very small. I've, I've seen Communist Party um, advertisements where they say, we repeat the claim that the islands are Japanese more than any other party. Well, that's not going to be a winning strategy. Um, settle Japanese, well, we have these other uh, choices as well, but you, you get the point. Uh, there's very strong comfort, very strong support for territorial defense and for deploying military force to defend Japanese territories, even out to the Senkaku Islands. Um, so my conclusions are, due to the public's attitudinal re re uh, realism, attitudinal defensive realism, do not expect the SDF to engage in overseas combat. Uh, don't expect the SDF to be deployed overseas, particularly to US-centric military operations, even in a non-combat non role but do expect Japan to continue developing a more robust territorial defense, which is what we're seeing, I would argue, particularly on the, uh, under the DPJ. In addition to the submarine buildup, we're also seeing the deployment of the uh, ground self-defense forces to Yonoguni, the westernmost island of Japan, um, and expect some scope for Japan to expand its role in peace building, post-conflict reconstruction, and perhaps counter-piracy operations, um, although it might Let's see here. Um, uh, it might make sense to think about diversifying its partners. Um, certainly, we have seen peace building emerging as an important pillar in Japanese foreign policy. Um, Japan's been taking an active role in places like East Timor, Sri Lanka, Aceh, and Mindanao. By the way, um, 
uh, Peng Er Lam, a professor at Singapore, uh, Singapore National University, has written an interesting book on this topic on Japan's peace-building diplomacy I can recommend. Um, but Japan has been playing an active role as a mediator in many of these places. Um, and I'd argue, this is kind of based on some other research, that the EU might be a promising partner in this area. Um, and in fact, the two are already cooperating very, uh, rather closely in counter-piracy uh, operations off Somalia. Um, and the reasons the EU might be a good partner is because they have similar views on how to resolve conflicts. They have a less combat approach and more of a kind of uh, development assistance, reconstruction assistance, kind of social stabilizing perception of how to deal with, uh, how to stabilize conflict zones and, and post-conflict regions. Um, and also, arguably, the EU can help build a kind of domestic, a broad, uh, broader coalition in Japan uh, that would help Japan to uh, expand its role in these areas. First, because uh, uh, the, um, frankly, the EU is in Japan as an image of being kind of boring and uh, not very polarizing, so that would make it less controversial. Also, uh, Japanese political um, spec uh, the European political spectrum is a bit more compatible with with uh, Japan, particularly on the left. You have left social you have social democrats in Japan in Europe who are in positions of power and support many of these operations. By comparison, you know there are really no social democrats in the United States. So if the uh, Shaminto wants to call their counterparts in the U.S., they don't really have a phone number. Uh, whereas they do if they call Brussels or call uh, a European uh, country. So that's it for my talk. Thank you very much for listening. I look forward to your questions.